Don't you love the uh, goofy camp songs they sing every year that then you get to experience on a Sunday morning when they get back. So uh, grateful for uh, a successful camp season. I think our camp season has, has, uh, with our kids anyway, has wrapped up. Um, Matt had fifth and sixth graders at camp this week. They got back on Thursday. Phil had the high schoolers at Peak in Colorado this week, and uh, they just got back late in the week as well too. And uh, he said he'd have a video for you by next week. He just didn't get it put together quite. So one more video you get to watch of, of our kids celebrating the summer and, and uh, just a great opportunity for us to kind of see what it is that you pray for, what it is that you pray about, what it is that you invest in, and um, get the chance to especially watch a baptism video there that was Paisley that was getting baptized uh, at camp, and, and we're, we're awesome, or it's awesome that we get to celebrate that with, with her. I'd like to welcome you in if you're here uh, visiting with us, if you're joining us online. My name's Kurt. Uh, glad that you joined with us today. And I want to start off by, by being a little controversial, if you would let me. I know I never, ever do that. I never say anything you disagree with, but we're going to be a little controversial here. And I want to talk about maybe the greatest debate of all time, okay? If, if I ask you a question... There's one or two answers, and there's only one right answer, by the way, but you may give me another answer. Here's my question, and I want to know who knows what I'm talking about when I ask this question. Who shot first? Nobody. There's a severe lack of Star Wars nerds in this church. I didn't know this before I took this job, or I might have asked some other questions. In the classic original Star Wars movie, it's, it's now referred to as A New Hope, uh, there's a scene that takes place between Han Solo, who's a smuggler who, uh, you know, runs stuff and picks up stuff for bounty hunters and knows how to kind of skirt around. He's a bit of a rebel, a um, bit of a gunslinger type of guy. He uh, has racked up a really big debt that he owes to a crime lord. So the crime lord sends a bounty hunter named Greedo to hunt him down, and he finds him in this cantina on this planet called Tatooine. And uh, while he's there, in the original, Greedo has him pinned, and the bounty on Han is dead or alive. So Greedo doesn't really care what he has to do, and it's kind of obvious by the way they're talking, he's probably going to shoot him. And in the original that came out in 1977, Han reaches under the table very casually, his, his blaster's on his hip, points it forward and shoots Greedo underneath the table before Greedo can shoot him. 20 years later, they uh, re-released the movies in preparation for the, the, the prequel movies that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. And in 1997, they released them with some updated special effects. And in the updated special effects, Greedo shot first. He shoots first, misses Han over his shoulder, and then Han shoots him from underneath the table. It was a very controversial decision. George Lucas was the creator of Star Wars and... Uh, and you know, he's the one who, who thought, you know, I didn't want Han to look like a cold-blooded murderer, so I made it where it was more like a defense mechanism, even though it's like literally a split second later. Now, I'll be honest, the first one I saw was the 97 version, so I don't care. Greedo shot first, in my opinion, but oh, I lost somebody over here. I'm sorry. I, I lost you already. But here's my point. Those who grew up on those originals just couldn't fathom the possibility that the story got changed. Now, they've released additional uh, versions since because... This was not a popular decision. And in, in uh, 2004, they released them again with, again, updated graphics, updated special effects to release them on uh, DVD for the first time. This time, they shoot at the exact same time. And again, the shot still misses over Han's shoulder. Han still hits a dead shot on Greedo. Fast forward again to 2019. 
They're released digitally for the first time when Disney Plus launched. And they completely changed the scene yet again. They add more dialogue, they add some new special effects in there, to the point where you actually cannot go find anymore an original copy, unless you already own one, of Han shooting first. And as you go through this, people who grew up on this, who, who this, is, this was their movie growing up, they kind of had this idea that the story got changed and that other things were changed, other things were added, other things were done to, to change what they loved. And whatever it is, whether it's this with Star Wars or whether it's something else, there's a truth that needs to come out of this silly story. And it's that no matter how hard you try, you cannot change the story once it's been told. We're in this little mini-series called The Little Guys that we started last week. And we're looking at a couple of the shortest books in the Bible. Last week we looked at Paul's letter to a guy named Philemon. Today we're looking at a letter written by a guy named Jude. And before we kind of jump into the, the crux of this letter, I just want to kind of lay this out for you, who he is and, and what he's writing about. Jude is a brother of Jesus. He's a half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was born to Mary before she married Joseph. Well, then eventually they did marry and have additional children. And two of them, they're, they're named later in the, the Gospels, two of them are James and Peter. Or, I'm sorry, James and Jude. Two, two men who wrote letters that we see in our New Testament. But Jude's writing this letter because of some things that are starting to happen. The story is starting to get changed that's being told in the church. And as we read Jude, it's kind of an interesting read. I'm not going to read all the way through it for you. I would encourage you to do that. It would take you maybe like 90 seconds or two minutes to read it, 25 verses, one page in most Bibles. Jude is one that we probably kind of skip over a lot of times, or we at least don't give it its... its proper attention. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is where it comes in the Bible. If you know the flow of the Bible, you know the order of the books, it comes right after the letters of John that are very uplifting and very engaging. And, and second and third John in particular are very short. So sometimes if you're doing that Bible reading plan, it has you read second John, third John, and Jude, all kind of together. And so you don't really get the emphasis on any one of them. But then some of you know what comes on the next page. The next page you're into, Revelation. And that's the book that for so many people you avoid altogether or you obsess over or you're terrified by it or you're fascinated by it. And so when you're reading Jude, you kind of know, oh, Revelation's next. Like it's, it's in your mind. But the other reason Jude is sometimes difficult to look at and get through is it's just written in a very odd fashion. Especially when you're getting through all those letters in the New Testament, all the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, letters of John, they're written in a very just loving and eloquent tone. Even if they're challenging the, the reader, they're, they're written in a loving tone. Jude is almost just ranting the whole time. And he, he states what he's going to say, and then he starts ranting, and he starts quoting stuff that you're like, hey, what is this? Because he quotes like the Assumption of Moses or the Book of Enoch that are, are books that were written alongside books in the Bible, but they're not inspired scripture. And so for that very reason, sometimes or early on that Jude was possibly not even considered to be part of the Bible for a long time by some of the early church fathers because he's using those resources that they consider to be unbiblical. But he's using them to prove why people shouldn't be using them. Like, this is a brilliant flip-around strategy here. He's quoting them to say, these are ridiculous, and here's why. I'm going to quote it, and you can hear it, and you can read it. But as he writes it, Jude basically lays out one major theme and purpose for why he is writing. It's that false teachers had infiltrated the church, 
And they had begun to trickle down, not just the ones who were intentionally deceiving the church, but now they've kind of deceived the ones who are trying to earnestly teach the church. And something other than the true gospel message of Jesus was beginning to be preached. If you didn't know any better, it would be very easy to read Jude and think this was written just a few years ago to the American church today. Because the message is just as relevant for us as it was for the original readers, and it has been for various societies throughout the course of time. And so what we want to do is kind of look what we did last week, just kind of pick out the two major themes and and grab a couple pieces of of the scripture. And again, I want to encourage you to read this this afternoon on your own. But Jude starts it off by saying what he wanted to say and then flipping back around to what he has to say. In verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Right off the bat, he's saying, I wanted to talk about our salvation and celebrate that. Uh, Yesterday, I was down in my hometown. We were having a celebration of life for my my great aunt. Um, We we just called her Aunt Teed. Her name's Louise, and my grandma's siblings all had weird nicknames that none of us can explain where they came from. But Aunt Teed passed away about two weeks ago, and uh, had she made it a few more days, would have hit 97 years old. And listening to the stories told about her, of course, I've known her my entire life, but listening to other people tell the stories about her, her life was a life worth celebrating because it was a life that was fully and wholly dedicated to following Jesus and serving his church. And it was so beautiful to hear the stories about how she would stuff sometimes 10 or 11 children in the backseat of her car to take them to to Bible school or or to uh, do whatever needed to be done to, to tell somebody about Jesus in a very soft and calm way. That was just her nature. We celebrated because here's somebody who, who lived almost 97 years and got her reward. Her reward was that salvation that, that Jesus gave her, that she accepted and she lived and she shared with everybody else. And I think Jude's wanting to do the same thing. We want to celebrate salvation. But we got to talk about something else first. And and what he's going to do is is give us really two major themes that we can pick out as lessons here that I think we can, again, apply to our church just as much as they did to this first church. The first lesson is this, be on guard for false teachers. Be on guard for false teachers. Again, he's just said, I wanted to call and talk about salvation, but I'm compelled to, to tell you something else about how you can... Maybe stand a little stronger. Verse 4, he explains why. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. He does a couple of things here. He very quickly switches the pronoun focus. He goes from talking about us to talking about them. And it's not that he's trying to draw a line in the sand and make people pick sides. But in the first verse, he's calling them his dear friends. And he's using personal pronouns with this. Now he's saying, they are teaching you. Those people. Those certain individuals. And he's going to use that throughout this letter anytime he's differentiating between the people of the church and the people who are deceiving the people of the church. But what he's highlighting here specifically are these false teachers are specifically making two claims that people are believing. The first claim they're making is that they're using God's grace to justify sinful behavior. They're justifying a sinful lifestyle 
because God will forgive you so you can get away with it. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's something we're seeing play out in front of us today. Yes, I want to be clear about this. God's grace is sufficient for your shortcomings. It's sufficient for when you stumble. But we need to be careful with how we use this. We talked a lot about God's grace in recent weeks. We talked about how the grace of God is getting what you don't deserve. That's good. You know, and, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But the grace of God, we have to understand how it works. It is there, yes, to forgive you of your sins. John says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, I write this to you. He's giving them a warning. I'm writing you so that you will not sin. He's trying to urge them, live a life that's holy. Live a life that doesn't stray off the path. But look what he says. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, he's being very, very clear. That's what the blood of Jesus does. That's what the grace of God does. It forgives you of your sins. And that's what sometimes makes this idea of grace difficult for people to understand. Have you ever heard the phrase, the scandal of grace? The reason that phrase gets brought up is because sometimes we have a hard time understanding it. My dad was a police officer for years and, and always told me how he struggled with this concept. Because he saw people at their worst. He never got the, the benefit of seeing people at their best. He saw them at their worst, and often it was the people that he was setting a couple of rows from on a Sunday morning. And so as a result, it just made him jaded to this idea that this person was really sincere about trying to worship God and live for God because then they go out and they beat on their wives or they go out and they're getting drunk every night and, and driving their car and they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. And as a result, it made it difficult for him to accept God's grace on his own life for the longest time. And for a lot of us, that's where we're at. Grace is hard for us to give, so it's also hard for us to receive. It's hard for us to understand going outwardly, so we don't really get it inwardly so much. But here's the thing about grace. We've talked about this. Grace comes with no conditions other than you've got to have a repentant heart. It's a free gift that God gives you, but a repentant heart is required to accept it. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized and walk away from your life of sin. But here's the thing about grace. I think there's a line. I think there's a line that does get drawn. Because again, the way John talks in John, 1 John chapter 2, that grace is there when we stumble. But the other writers in the New Testament are very clear. It's not just a free pass. Paul says in Romans 6, What do we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In the Greek, that's one word. It's the word meganoita. I had a professor in, in uh, Bible college. Some of you met him last fall. He was here speaking at our men's retreat. Named Terry Boland. Big, huge, deep voice. And every time he would do that, he would flex meganoita, like he really wanted to point that out. That's how powerful those three words in our English language were to him. By no means. In other words, he's saying, God's grace isn't there for you just to go do whatever you want, whenever you want, all the time. The writer of Hebrews agrees in, in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, notice the phrasing there, deliberately keep on sinning. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's an uplifting verse, right? That's what we think when we think about the grace of God. 
No, the gospel of grace is, is it's not one that gives you a free pass. And if that's what you're hearing or preaching or, or sharing with others, that a gospel of grace gives you a get-out-of-jail-free card or a pass to just do whatever you want whenever you want, or if it feels good, do it, that's not the true gospel of Jesus. And that's what Jude is trying to stress here, that people have turned God's grace into that free pass. Jesus himself told us that life doesn't work that way, that following him would be difficult. The, the way of sin is easy, he says. He, he spends the entire Sermon on the Mount comparing those two lifestyles, the way the world lives, the way the kingdom lives. And as he's wrapping up that sermon in, in Matthew chapter 7, he gives a great illustration of what that looks like when he says, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Church, let me, let me tell you, a gospel message of cheap grace is that gospel message that justifies sin. That says it's okay because you've got a, a God who's kind of like an uncle or like a grandpa who says, ah, don't do that again, you know, and, and just every single time, don't do that again, don't do that again. And there's nothing really that's a threat that comes behind it. It's a gospel message that tells us that's not a very Christian response. That's just really judgmental for somebody who's also not perfect. When we just simply stand on truth. When we simply stand on what the word of God says. But you need to understand something. God's grace doesn't work without God's wrath. You cannot separate those two. It's easy to look at our Bible and think the Old Testament is, is a very wrathful God. He's a God that, that sent a flood to wipe out humanity. He's a God that, that had his people go take out nations in his name. And then we get to the New Testament. That doesn't happen anymore. Now it's Jesus' love and, and there's grace and mercy and, and that's what the cross is for. That's what the cross is all about. And the answer is yes and no both because it's all <laughs> The grace of the New Testament doesn't work without the wrath of the Old Testament. That wrath that was poured out on Jesus on the cross when John says that he was our atoning sacrifice. There's another word that gets used in some other translations. That The word is propitiation. We read about it in Romans chapter 3 that God poured out that propitiation, that wrath. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. He's the one who endured all of that that we actually deserved. That's what grace ultimately looks like. And understand that God's grace, separated from God's judgment, is a grace that has no love behind it. Parents, this is why disciplining your children is important. If you've got children, yes, we want our kids to like us. We want our kids to be around us. We want our kids to, to look at us as heroes, you know, or, or, or heroes of their story. But if our kids never have discipline in their lives... And I'm not telling you how to discipline your kids, but I'm saying if your kids don't have discipline, what are they going to grow up as? When I taught high school, I had several kids that by the time they got to high school, it was very clear that their parents were their best friends. And they could get away with kind of whatever they wanted. And in a couple of very rare cases, it was okay because they just turned out to be good kids, period. They were going to be good adults, and so they could kind of get away with it. They weren't, they weren't troublemakers. They weren't problem makers, and so their parents were very, very lax on them. But more times than not, they were kids that had no concept of right or wrong. They had no concept of respect or disrespect because it was never impressed upon them by their parents. And to me, just, just my opinion, take it for what it's worth, that's not a very loving situation as a parent. That's how God works here 
with us. A God who, who takes judgment away from grace is a God who doesn't really have grace and love anyway. And I would say this too, a God who is loving and just doesn't tolerate it when we take his grace for granted. And a grace that's used as a get-out-of-jail-free card is a grace that's taken for granted. Basically, you're saying, I can go do whatever I want, whenever I want. I can get off scot-free. So my dad was a police officer. I meant I could get away with a few things, mostly driving about five or ten over the speed limit, maybe rolling through a stop sign. I didn't press that luck to see how far I could go and what all I could get away with. Because I always knew whatever I did, my dad was going to find out, and I might not get a ticket. I was going to get something worse when I got home. My brother didn't care. He got pulled over left and right all over the place. It was a little rougher for him, to the point where he got threatened to lose his vehicle and he would walk everywhere he was going. No, we don't take it for granted. Don't take God's grace for granted. Here's the second thing that these false teachers are giving that Jude talks about here. Not only are they, they, they talking about false teachers and talking about a cheap grace, but they're also denying the lordship of Jesus. They believe in Jesus from what it sounds like, but it says that, he says they're denying him as, as Savior and Lord. Those are two interesting words that we read about here. And it's, it's, it's worth remembering that believing in Jesus isn't simply enough. It is a big, important step, yes, but it's not everything. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 2 that even the demons in hell believe in Jesus. They know he exists, and guess where they're at? No, it's more than simply believing in him. It's believing who he is. And when you believe who he is fully, that's when you're accepting him as your Lord. You're making him Lord. Peter makes this interesting uh, comparison here. Acts chapter 2, the church begins. It's the day of Pentecost, and, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and they speak in tongues and, and, and hear other languages. And Peter gives this incredible sermon that's laying out to these Jewish people. I mean, day, day one of the church, laying out who Jesus is and what he's all about. And as he's building and building and building, he ends with this as his dominant thought. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, who, oh, by the way, you guys crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Some translations will say Lord and Savior. Either word works there. But it's interesting that he uses both, and it's interesting that he, he orders them in this order. And yes, in the Greek, this is their, their order here. Because a savior is somebody who saves you from danger. It's somebody who keeps you from driving your car off a cliff, or it's somebody who pulls you out of a bad situation. A savior is somebody who saves you. But a lord, a lord is somebody you bow before. A Lord is somebody that you honor in everything that you do because you do it in their name. A Lord is somebody that you give control over your life and your decisions. And Peter is saying these are two distinct titles of Jesus, and they both apply to our lives. If you want to follow him, he has to be your Savior, yes, but he also needs to be your Lord. There's a lot of people in the church right now, maybe you're one of them, you're great at making Jesus your savior. You fully acknowledge his grace in your life. You know you couldn't have been saved without him. But we're not always the best at making him our Lord. We're not always the best at going to him with our decisions and putting them in his hands and saying, what is your will for my life? What do you want me to do next? Not what I want, but what, what you want. 
We're not always the best at making him our Lord. And Peter is saying here, they're both. And Jude is saying here, these people in this church are denying that. They're using other titles for Jesus instead. Maybe they're titles like we hear about Jesus all the time. There's a lot of ways you can describe Jesus. I hear him talked about as being a good teacher or a, a wonderful historical figure or a moral you know, example that we can follow. None of those are wrong, but they're just a fraction of who he is. It's all that and it's more. And as the church, we need to understand something right now. When it comes to this description of Jesus and this description of his gospel, this is the battle we're fighting right now. It's not a battle where we have an enemy who's going to put a, a battering ram on a tank and come plowing through our front doors. He's smarter than that. Because he knows that if he does that and knocks our front doors down, we're just going to put up new doors and we're going to be a little more emboldened. Anytime you're persecuted, you get a little more emboldened. He knows if he knocks our building down, we'll just go get another building. You will build another one. That's going to happen. He's smarter than that. He knows that if, if somebody were to come up to us and say, hey, this is just a lie, this whole Bible, it's fake, it's all made up, then we're not going to believe him. So what's he do instead? Hey, he's not going to do all that. Instead, he's going to come up and say, hey, you know this verse right here that you've read your whole life? This is what it actually means. And you're like, oh, well, I had never thought of it that way. And just little by little, little twist here, little twist there, we start to buy in. And if you think that's not the devil's strategy, go look at when Jesus was tempted because he tried to pull this on him. He quotes scripture to Jesus, but he leaves a word or two out. Or he changes just a little bit. Jesus, of course, being God in the flesh, knew better. We're not God in the flesh, so what do we need to do? You make sure this word is on your heart. And therefore, then you'll be able to defend all of those changes that are being made. We're getting these all over the place right now. Changes being made to the story. Changes to fit a new narrative. Go back to what we talked about at the beginning. The Han Solo, who shot first. You can't change the story just because you don't like how it's reading right now. You can't do that. But we were told back in the days of the Bible that this is exactly what people would, would do. And it's happening. And we're not the first group that this has happened to. It's happened throughout history in every society that's ever been founded on the Bible. But Paul was very, very clear in, in 2 Timothy. He said, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a crowd, a great number of teachers, to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oh my goodness, that is, that's happening everywhere right now. He says they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We're going to make this believe what we want it to believe. Truth is what we want it to be. Truth is relative. That's, that's what he's warning them about here. And that's why he's writing this letter to warn about false teachers that are infiltrating the church. But then he gives a second lesson to tell us what to do about it. The second lesson that we get out of Jude is that if we want to be on guard against those false teachers... We've got to stand firm in the faith and encourage one another. He doesn't just go on the rant the whole time. He ends it by talking about how we as the church should exist together and why. He says in verse 17, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. 
These are the people who would divide you, who follow mere natural instincts but do not have the spirit. Uh, I think about a couple of parts of this, this set of verses here. He says there's going to be scoffers. When I think of scoffers, I think about people who mock, people who make fun of. And I don't know about you, I don't really ever have people make fun of me for my faith. And, and maybe, I, you, maybe you do, maybe you don't. What I often hear, though, are people don't make fun of me for my faith, but they make fun of my faith. Or they mock my faith. And they'll say it was a made-up story, or they'll say that you know, it's archaic, or they'll say that it doesn't fit anymore, and all the reasons why. And the more you hear that, the more it might chip away at you. Or again, the more you might say, you know what? You got a point. You don't fully buy in, but you believe the point here. This is they'll divide us. They're going to follow what, what, you know, the enemy's leading them to do. But look what he says in verse 20. But you, my dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. So we just celebrated with my Aunt T this week. The mercy of the Lord brought her eternal life. And he's talking about us being welcomed through physical human death into eternity or through the return of Jesus, either one. And as we are marching on towards that goal. Yesterday, to wrap up her service, we sang, I feel like traveling on. The great old hymn. He said, because that's what she's done. She's traveled on. And that's what so many of us have experienced already through, through a loved one. Or the statistics show all of us will eventually probably get there. You know, the statistics show most of us are going to die at some point in our lives. Are you ready for Jesus when you do that? Are you ready to accept him as your Savior and your Lord so that when your day comes, you're welcomed into eternity. He goes on to say, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire to show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Are we able to do that, church? Are we able to stand firm together and encourage one another? Because let me tell you something. There's a little secret. That's the whole point of a church. We worship God, yes. We glorify God, yes. We go out and seek and save the lost, yes. But we walk and we do this together. Because the enemy knows something else about us. We're a lot easier to pick off when we're on our own. And our enemy, it says in 1 Peter, is like a lion who's stalking his prey. Ever watch those nature documentaries? Those packs of wolves? Who do they go after? They go after the weak one that's at the back. That's who they pick off. They go after the small one that they can, they can snatch easily. They don't go after the big ones right in the middle. No, they get the wounded that have been left behind. They get the weak. Jude is so earnestly just begging the church to continue to do what they're supposed to do, to remain steadfast and faithful in their belief as they wait for Christ. When we read about the last days in the New Testament, understand, they thought they were in the last days. They thought Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And we've been in the last days ever since. But he talks about why it's so important to stand firm and persevere. And he's echoing, like he said, what the other apostles have already said, what Paul wrote and Peter wrote and James and John wrote. He's echoing all of that because he knows a truth that both good and bad experiences can, can cause you to stumble. 
We think about bad experiences causing us to stumble. Those bad experiences can leave you depleted. They can drain you of your determination. They can drain you of of your courage to step out in faith. They can leave you exhausted and vulnerable like the weak one at the back of a pack. But the good experiences can bloat you and balloon you to the point where you don't think you need help anymore. And, And then sometimes you're just able to kind of drift away and not even realize it because you're not needing to rely on God in those moments. So therefore, you quit relying on God. And you quit relying on him. No, he encourages us to build up our faith and to build it up together. How do we do that? Paul gives us one of the most fun examples in all of the Bible. Uh, An example that gets used with kids all the time. In fact, our home-based church in Oklahoma, this was their their theme for VBS this year. We get to put on some really cool armor. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. He says to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand, or take your stand against the devil's schemes. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Hear this. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. What's the armor of God? It has six pieces to it. He says first to put on the belt of truth. That's what we're talking about. Put on truth as a belt that is right in the middle of you that discerns between false teaching and and accurate doctrine. He says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's walking in step with God. That's walking in a way that pleases God. And and a breastplate is one of the the two most important defensive parts of the armor. He he says also to put on the, the gospel of peace on your feet so that your steps will be steps that unify and don't divide that bring the gospel message everywhere that you go. He says to put on the shield of faith, the most important defensive piece is your faith. The the part that you hide behind, the part that you can use offensively if need be, but the part that protects you and everything that is vital and important to you. He says to put on the helmet of salvation, to put your mind into the grace of God through your faith. And he says to grab the the sword of the spirit. That's your word. That's this right here. And he doesn't say to use it as an offensive weapon. I don't want to see you out there beating people with your Bibles. That's not what it's for. No, it's so we can fight when those evil sources come our way, when those evil spirits come our way, to protect ourselves in these times of adversity that we're facing right now, church. Look at what God has given us to fight with. He gave us his son. He gave us his spirit. He gave us his word and he gave us his church. And here's the thing. We have an enemy that would like to fight us without any of those things. Or maybe with just one of those things. But if we are dedicated and devoted to all four of those, man, we're a lot. We're a a handful for the devil. We can be a handful for him. His entire goal is to convince you that you don't need him. His entire goal is to convince you that you can take him one-on-one. And I can tell you, it doesn't work out very well. I can tell you that from personal experience. It doesn't work out real well when you're fighting him one-on-one. We're called to be on guard, church, to stand firm. And I just want to tell you, sometimes the greatest dangers to the church come from within. We see a lot of preachers and a lot of pastors that have lost sight of the message, either because they're just intentionally following what the world tells them to, or because they've been deceived themselves. I can tell you, I'm, I'll never ever claim to be an expert on the Bible. 
I, I study it, yes, it's, it's my life to study it. But I can tell you, if it's me, if it's Brad, if it's somebody else on staff, when we preach from right here, we are giving you what we honestly, sincerely believe to be God's honest truth. Sometimes it's not fun to talk about, but we're going to talk about it and we're going to give it to you. But here's the challenge, and I know Brad said this too, and I'm going to continue to say this to you. Don't just take our word for it. You be in your word. You be studying it. You be, I mean, come to me sometimes and say, Kirk, you know, I don't know that you got that right. Come tell me that. Because let me just tell you, I think the worst possible outcome for me in my life is that when my time comes, and, and I'm at the, the, the ta- table of judgment, he looks at me and says, you misled a lot of people. And I didn't do it on purpose, but I did it anyway. Folks, we need to be in our words together. That's why we push preaching biblical sermons. That's why we push living in community together with one another. That's why we push the importance of being here to fellowship with one another as much as we possibly can. Because none of us can take this fight on on ourselves. Individually, we can be deceived, even the most diligent among us, but together we are much harder to trip up, much harder to attack, and much harder to take down. The world wants to corrupt and confuse. Jesus wants to sanctify so we can glorify. So here's kind of a thought I want you to take with you today. That Jude, I think, is ultimately wrapping up his entire letter with, the truth is the truth. It's not what you want it to be. The truth is the truth. And we are called to stand firm in it. No, his wrath is not a fun topic to talk about. Punishment and justice and and, and judgment are not fun topics to talk about. But we have a holy, perfect God. And we are called to try to emulate him as best as we possibly can. And that's where we find his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. And God, we're thankful too that it comes with your judgment alongside it. That that's how your justice works. Your justice doesn't work without it. So God, I pray that we would never ever take that grace for granted and use it as a hall pass or use it as a free pass. And that we would never cheapen who Jesus is because of how we do that. Yes, we are imperfect and yes, we need your grace daily. Yes, we're going to stumble daily. As Paul says that we all have sinned and we all will continue to sin. But God, I pray that none of us look at that like we can just do whatever we want. That we would live our lives that we have your name on them. That we would do everything in your name to honor and glorify you. God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for his son. We pray this today in his name. Good morning. We are entering into our time of communion now, so if you need to grab a cup, uh, there are some tables in the back and on each side. Feel free to go ahead and get up now and get one of those cups. And just so you know, uh, like normal, we put a drop of super glue on each one to make it more challenging. <laughs> no. We, we actually had a batch the last couple of weeks from a different supplier. And so if you've had some challenges the last couple of Sundays, that was why. We're back to the originals that we've been using today. 
What you'll find when you peel the very top thin layer off, you'll find a little piece of bread there. And then if you peel the next layer off, you'll find a cup of juice underneath that one. Two very, very basic things, bread and the fruit of the vine. That's how Jesus referred to it in Matthew 26. When he initiated this, he was talking to his disciples uh, the very day in which he was arrested uh, later in that day. And he took the bread and he passed it, said, this is my body. Eat this in memory of me. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this. Bread and the fruit of the vine, juice. Very basic. It's not something magical about them. But the significance of them, because of Jesus' explanation, is very significant, very important. It is to remind us of his body. To remind us of his body that was nailed to the cross and his blood during that whole crucifixion that was shed. Because all that happened for you. And it happened for me. And he wanted his disciples never to lose sight of that. Not just the disciples he was talking to in that room when he initiated it, but his disciples for centuries to come. And that would include us as well. Let me read a verse. This is Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 that I'm going to be reading. And Kurt talked just a little bit ago about... uh, how Jude talks about the warning of false teaching, false teachers, and how we need to be on our guard against that. Well, this is a different passage, but yet that is a big part of the theme. Paul was meeting with the leadership in the church at Ephesus. He didn't go to Ephesus because he was on a deadline that he wanted to be in Jerusalem. And so he went to a different town and he sent word for the elders to rendezvous with him at this other town. And he met with them and he was giving them warnings of their responsibility. And one part of that involved false teachers. But I want you to get what else he said. Here's the statement. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Specifically, that phrase, which in talking about the church, which he purchased, God purchased with his own blood. Redemption. We look at the being on the receiving end of redemption and the blessing and benefits that come with that. But what about on the paying end of all of that? And that's what this is referencing. The purchase price to make it possible for you to be freed from all the sin in your life and to be able to enter into the presence of God at the end of this life. That's all not because of something you've done. It's all because of what he's done for you. And so that we never forget that, we regularly take the bread and we remember his body. We take the cup and we remember his blood that paid the price 
for us to have what we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for something so simple, but yet something so significant to help ensure that we don't get to some point in time in our lives where we just start taking this for granted. Forgiveness, almost with a shrug of shoulders. Yeah, I'm forgiven. And we don't give it an additional thought. Father, forgive us for the times when that's our attitude. Thank you for loving us, that you were willing to pay such an incredibly steep price to free us from our sin. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, whose body and blood was shed on our behalf that we pray. Amen.